good to be with everybody today. It's such a joyful day. This is the day that the Lord has made and has sanctified. Let us rejoice and be glad indeed. Man. I'm going to say Abraka, get right into it because I have lots of little things to share that may be big things. And I want to take every opportunity so that I don't run out of time, as is typically the case each and every week. So I'm going to try to hurry here. Rukashim. Bless the Adonai, God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of your Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your offspring and the offspring of our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Bless the Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. B'shem Yeshua. So something interesting about this story, uh, first of all, I just want to say right off the bat, I want to reiterate, double down, as everybody's fond of saying, upon a statement that I've made many times before, but after re reading through all of the parashot that we've read through, and then now the oh my gosh parasha, as Amet <laughs> called it, which I think is appropriate, um, I just want to say that if Hasve Shalom... Messiah is, the Yeshua is not the Messiah, and he is, okay, don't, don't think for a second that I, I doubt that, but I'm just going to say a statement here that if, if that's not the case, I tell you 100%, to quote Mizraki, 100%, I tell you he's, there won't be a Messiah. Right. I'm telling you right now, if, if Yeshua is not it, if we've, if, 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 if a guy can get out there like Babe Ruth and knock it out of the park every single time, and he's not our hitter, we don't have one. Right? right? So just know that right off the bat. Secondly, I want to tell you something interesting. I was reading uh, kind of seemingly random, although nothing's random that God shows you, right? So we have this incident of Benjamin who is framed with stealing something, and then that something leads the brothers back to... Uh, uh, Yosef, and Yosef reveals himself as the hope of the world, right? That's what the Midrash calls him. Calls him the hope of the world, right? Uh, in another place, it calls him the savior of the world. But anyway, he's the hope of the world, which, by the way, that's also a name for God, right? In case you're wondering if that was a correct answer, the answer is yes, it is a name for God. The hope of the world. It says in Jeremiah 17 that you are, Hashem, the mikvah of Israel. But the word mikvah in Hebrew, or excuse me, the word hope of Israel, the word in Hebrew is actually mikvah. So he's the mikvah and the hope. So we have here this, this incident where it brings back. But what led to the revelation? What was the item that the king put into the uh, knapsack of Benjamin? in order to bring him back to the revelation? And the answer is the goblet. Okay? Which he told the brothers, don't you know that I use my goblet for divination? Now, I remember that because we're going to come back to that in a second, where a king divines. Okay? So he, don't you know I use my goblet for divination? So what is a goblet used for at a king's table? The goblet in the, is, is always used for wine or the fruit of the vine. And in the first century, they drank wine, not grape juice. Wine. Do you know why they drank wine at Pesach? Because, in case you're confused, which I know none of you are, this is the proverbial 
preaching to the cantors. Anyway, um, the Pesach ceremony takes place in the spring, right? Now, we modern society, and so when we want grape juice, we can go year-round to anywhere and buy it. But that wasn't the case in the first century. In the first century, grapes are harvested in the fall. They're taken off the vine, and they are crushed, and grape juice comes out. Grape juice from, from uh, Sukkot to Pesach ruins, or it ferments. One of the two, right? So by the time spring rolls around, you either have wine or you have sour liquid-like substance, right? That's growing things that you don't want to ingest. So they don't have Welch's. They didn't have Welch's back then. Welch's did not come until the next year. So anyway, um, they drank wine. So you have the goblet and you have the wine. So the wine goblet is used for divination. In other words, it's used for revelations. So yain in Hebrew is wine, and the gematria of yain is 70, and the gematria of sod is 70. So that the sages say that when one drinks wine, the secrets come out. Come out. But I want to say that the word sod in Hebrew talks about deep revelation, the deep revelation of the word. So that when you drink from the goblet of wine, then revelation happens. In other words, when you drink from the king's goblet, you see the king. So if we go back and say, what are you, so what are you trying to talk to us about, Rabbi? Well, what I'm trying to say is that whenever we sit down on Friday night and we have Kiddush and we drink from the goblet that wine, it's this wine out of a silver cup or a glass cup, or whatever your fancy goblet is, because it can be anything, but, it has, but if you do take partake of Kiddush, that goblet that you use is only used for Kiddush. It's only used for the, for the Kiddush, whether it be Shabbat or Yom Tov. It's never, ever used for anything else. So that, that cup holds the wine, and when you partake of it, it brings the sod, which is the revelation of who the king really is. So that's important. So this is why Kiddush, don't think that, that whenever we do something, that it's just some little act. See, that's the, that's, the, that's the Western Gentile mind, right? That when we do an act, oh, it's just, this is just a formality. No, it's not a formality. When we do an act in Judaism, whether it's ceremony washing our hands or eating kosher or drinking from the wine or donning seat seed or wrapping tefillin or whatever... Whatever we're doing, we are bringing down the Kedusha. We're bringing down the holiest of that initial element, whatever it was brought in, whatever, whenever it was instituted. This is why every time we celebrate Hanukkah, we bring down into our lives Nesgado. We bring down into our lives a great miracle. Whenever we celebrate Pesach, we bring down at that time the miracles of Pesach to include freedom. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. Amen. Now, on to something else. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I'm going to get to the power shot momentarily. But somebody asked me a question this week. To wit, I gave an answer. And I thought that the answer was not necessarily profound, but perhaps helpful. So Acts 15. This is, uh, man, this Acts, is, Acts 15 is a, a road that many have traveled. 
By the way, while you're turning there, I was looking back at my notes from last year at this parasha, and I, for the sake of instilling confidence into our congregation, I mentioned that, that our, our commitment to using sources, and we, we're, we don't believe in sourceless hatred. So if you're, if you're new, sources hatred is a play on, on a baseless hatred, which is the temple was destroyed for. And we also say MSU, which stands for making stuff up. Amen. So we have an ethic here at Sar Shalom, and that is that whatever we bring down, if it's opinion, we state it as such, this is just our opinion, or it, everything else has to be sourced. It has to have a source. And I want to just, just uh, since I saw that from last year, I just wanted to reiterate the fact that we believe in sources. And by sources, what I mean is... Between my library, my personal library, and the library of the Talmudim, which collectively is a lot, we have the entire Talmud. We have the entire Midrash Rabbah. We have all of Ramban, all of Rambam, all of Rashi, Orchachayim. We have Mayam Loez. We have the entire Zohar. We have, basically, if Art Scroll makes it, we own it. If <laughs> Kehot publishes it, we've bought it. Okay. We have everything, and we even have it digitally. So we have not just, and we, and we read it in Hebrew and English. We have all of the commentary, and then we have the commentary to the commentary, and then we have the commentary to that commentary. So we're not reading stuff out of context. And when I say that we have these sources, what I mean is we physically have them on our hand and read them. So you should take confidence in this, okay? So Acts 15, let's go there to Acts 15, chapter 6. Excuse me, Acts 15, verse 6, rather. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. What question? The question is, how do we accept non-Jews into this world? That's a, it's a profound moment here because this is approximately 15 years after the resurrection. Messiah was with us for three years, and then he was with us in the glorified body for 40 days, teaching us all the secrets. Then the Ruach HaKodesh fell, and we're all filled with the Ruach, and we're teaching for 15 years, and we still don't know what to do with non-Jews. Why? Because there have never been a non-Jews come in, right? And the Pharisees are there, and these are not the bad people. These are actually the believers who are also Pharisees, because Messiah was a Pharisee, you see. And so everybody's there, and they're trying to figure out, how do we make this happen, right? So they continue. The apostles and elders met to consider this question, because they don't know. And so after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, just a side note, how could, you sh how could Peter say that? This is Kepha, Peter, Kepha. It's been taught by many that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But Kepha is saying here, God appointed me to speak to the Gentiles. So it's been taught that God, that all the disciples messed up. They didn't get it. They were, now this is really, think about this for a second. My message today is not on Acts 15, but this is like a bonus. So think about this. Messiah is with you for three years. Now, just take, take yourself. Take yourself. Let's, because we, we like to bash the apostles like they're a bunch of idiots, right? Just take yourself for a second. You're having a conversation with somebody. You, were, you walked with Mashiach for three years. Then, after he was resurrected, he came and he camped out at your house for 40 solid days and taught you Torah and all about the Word of God, right? When he left your house, he didn't use the front door. He just walked through the wall, Right? 40 solid days. You think you slept? No, you didn't. It was like being on the mountain. 
Then when he leaves, he pours out upon you the neshama, right? The fire. You're filled with the ruach of God and you start saying stuff you didn't even know you knew. Then you're in this for 15 solid years. You're bringing it down. You're a heavy hitter, man. He's giving you all the, talk about sources. Right? And then you have, to, you have to tell somebody, yeah, after all of that, I still don't know anything I'm talking about, so God had to raise up this guy. Now think about that for a second. What does that say about the Messiah? What does that say about the Messiah? The Messiah, it says we have, God forbid, an incompetent Messiah. Listen, any rabbi who's not able to teach a student is no rabbi. If you're a rabbi and you have all your Talmudim, you have 12 Talmudim, and at the end of the day, all of your Talmudim are idiots, do you think they're going to give you another one? That's an indictment on you, not them. We're blaming the apostles for not getting it. What? Okay. You see where I'm going with this? Now, the Peter was the one who taught the, the Gentiles. Why? Because Peter is the head. He is the head. He is El... Hefe. <laughs> and if he, if somebody, if a, if a little heferita comes around and says, I'm going to go speak to this people group, and P, if Peter doesn't say it's okay, then it's not okay. But Kepha says it's okay because he's already been instructed to, to preach to that people group. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. There's no rogue apostles out there. Okay. This is not rogue one. Right? Just making it contemporary. All right, let's continue reading. So only have three hours left. So we go. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the, the Holy Spirit to them. Okay? Just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, now then, why do, we, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Now, when you read that, the question was asked, what is he talking about? Because many people believe he's talking about the Torah. God forbid. But that's an impossibility. Why? Because Jews have never, ever, 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 dot, 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 ever, considered the Torah a burden. That would also be blasphemous. Because the Torah is the scripture. And so you would be saying, Hasve Shalom, that the scripture is a burden. And we can't bear it. So we would be saying, for instance... That loving our neighbor is a deep burden, one of which we cannot carry. We would be saying that not committing adultery is a terrible burden that we cannot bear. We would be saying that wearing seat seat is a burden, we can't do it. We would be saying that celebrating Pesach or Rosh Hashanah or Shavuot or Hanukkah is a burden that we cannot bear. Anybody feel burdened during Hanukkah this week? Okay, I didn't. I'm just curious. We would be saying that not sleeping with an animal would be a burden that we cannot bear. 
We would be saying that not having relationships with the same sex would be a burden that we could not bear. We would be saying that to help our neighbor when they are ill or in need is a burden that we could not bear. We, are, we would be saying all of these things. We would be saying that we cannot bear not eating pork. We just can't bear it. It's a burden to us. Now, if you look at everything I've just said, obviously that is nonsensical, that all of these things, we are not burdens, and we can not do them, right? right. So we know... What Kepha is saying, he is not, it's an impossibility that he's talking about the Torah. It's an impossibility. It's blasphemous if he is. It's, it's a terrible slander to the God of Israel if he's saying that. You have to understand something, and I want to emphasize this. The Torah is the word of God. The law of Moses is the word of God. Let me say that again. The law of Moses is the word of God. It came from God, not man. The same God who said don't commit adultery is the same God who said don't eat shrimp. The same God who said love your neighbor is the same God who said don't, if you're a man, don't sleep with another man. Which, by the way, the word abomination that talks about shrimp is the same word that is used to speak about homosexuality, which is the same word that's used to speak about idolatry. They're all connected. Now, let me just piece that together for you because I like to do that. <laughs> if you understand that the same word is about idolatry, it was about homosexuality, it's about eating shrimp or unkosher food in general, then you have to understand that when you commit one of those acts, you are committing all three of those acts. They're connected. You understand what I'm saying? So what is he talking about? Well, this reminded me to use to understand what he's meaning. I, 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 Hashem gave me an analogy. So everybody's meeting in the room, and there were all these non-Jews. Imagine these are first-century non-Jews. They don't know anything about anything. Maybe some of them, probably a lot of them, have visited the synagogue and they're kind of getting to know things. But there's a group who says, "Listen, in order for them to come in, they've got to know everything, and they got to have been doing everything." Well, one time, it's been a while back, I had lunch with a rabbi friend of mine in Dallas, and he's an Orthodox rabbi and very strict in his halakha. And so he and I were discussing conversion, and he said to me, he said, if I'm going to convert somebody at our synagogue, they have to know, and I quote, the Shulchan Aruch cold. Now, the Shulchan Aruch is a voluminous work. We have the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, which is an abridged version, and it's five volumes. Okay, that's the shortened version. Then there's the greater version, which, you know, is out there. Now, what's interesting about this, so he, he's saying that if you're not Jewish and you want to convert at his synagogue, and he's not, he's not a lone ranger, many people think this way, you have to know the Shulchan Aruch cold, cold. But... I happen to know that at his synagogue, to his people, he offers a weekly Shulchan Aruch class. To wit, I asked, if the convert has to know what cold, then how come your people don't know what cold? Now, see, that's the, that's the yoke upon their neck that we ourselves were not able to bear. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? They, they don't know what cold. Listen, anybody visit the Chabad website? I love the Chabad website. 
I want to pirate it. <laughs> but in a kosher way. It's a great website. But Chabad has no interest in reaching non-Jews. None. At all. Zero zilch nada. Zero. They're cold about it. Now, but if you go to their website, it's all about the mitzvahs, why they exist, what are they, how are they, how do we fulfill them, how do we do them. This is, I mean, there's like, there's like picture graphs and crayon drawings about it. I mean, it's really awesome, right? But it's all to Jews, which tells us what? That they don't know, Right? That all these Jewish people, and listen, it's not just the rogue ones that are out there partying in Tel Aviv. These are the Jews that are in their synagogue. Don't know. They're all learning, but yet when a non-Jew comes to their synagogue, we stand at the door and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need you to quote the first chapter of Shulchan Go. Or Ha'ayim. Hit it. And they're like, yeah, can you, what, is, what does Or Ha'ayim mean? I don't know. I'm going to go to Habad. But you should know. That's not a slide against a bond, okay? I don't mean that like that. What I'm trying to say is that's the yoke we put on them that we ourselves cannot bear. That's what Kepha is talking about. We're expecting them to be at a level. And listen, we're still here in the circle trying to figure something out, and they don't even know anything about anything. They just now rose up from worshiping Athena, and they're coming here, and we're sitting here trying to figure something out, and they don't even know nothing about nothing. So how about we... Send them to shul, school, and let them learn the Torah as they're going, right? Baruch Hashem. So there you go. So that's it. So in, in the Humash, page 257, going back to Yosef, going back to this, this encounter, Parsha Gosh, the two kings meet, right? Which, by the way, so, golly, this is like a, I don't know what you call this, Josh. It's uh, a lot of everything. It is. It's like everything that was left over from Hanukkah we're eating today. <laughs> so, this is just remind me of this because we're reading, and the, who read, the, who, uh, um, it was, um, it was uh, Raymond, Raymond. Raymond read from the Haftarah, right? He was reading about the two sticks, Okay. So hopefully, most of you don't want to know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just listen to what I'm saying and forget it. And don't bother going to look it up. But there's a deviant. I say deviant. I don't want to be so hard. There's a, just, a, just an, an errant. There you go. An errant. Errant. An errant teaching out there called the Two House Movement, right? And it's, it's an all-Gentile network. It's all Gentiles, no sources, teaching from a Gentile point of view about this topic. And they, they got in there, and they, they looked at the two sticks, and they said, oh, look, there's two sticks. And so, and, and by the way, to their credit, the reason they exist is because the Messianic synagogues failed to offer them a path to Judaism. And so when you shut the door in people's faces, they'll go kick the door in somewhere else and unfortunately kicked it in in, the, in another house, okay? And so they, they say that, that we are Jews, but we're from the house of Ephraim, and the Jews, like us, we're all from Judah, which is ridiculous because not all Jews are from Judah. But they think that because Jews are called Jews that they're from Judah, which is where the word Jew comes from. And from the carnal mind, that seems very likely, right? Jews, if you're a Jew, then you're from Judah. Except for the fact that from all the ancient sources, Jews are called Jews after Judah, regardless of what tribe you come from, because we're all named after the king. 
And his name means praise. And because we all praise God, we are all called Jews. So Hebrew, Israelite, and Jew are all synonymous. But also in this week's commentaries, it talks about the fact, and I just read it. I just read it somewhere. Maybe it was in the Humash or some, I read so many things, I sometimes forget which source. But I can source this out. It's not hard. But basically it says in here, that we are all called, it was in the Kehol Tumash. Yeah, let me, let me, excuse me one second. Let me go ahead and get this so that we don't have sourceless hatred. <laughs> yeah. Yes, here it is. Okay. Kehol Tumash Vayigash, page 298, Hasidic Insights. Joseph's example gives us the strength to follow in his footsteps. Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway. Um... As, as has been mentioned, the Jewish people... Now, I just got through saying that the Jewish people are called Jew after Judah, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, the, uh, the HR rooters say that we're called... I say that in love. We are call, they're called, we're called Ephraim because of the Ephraimites, but Ephraim comes from who? Joseph, right? So Jews are Jews, and we are Ephraim, and neither shall the two become one except the Mashiach opens our eyes or something like that. I'm not sure what the end game is on that. But anyway, (laughs) at some point, we tear down one of the houses and build a new one. I'm not sure. But anyway, it says, as has been mentioned, the Jewish people are collectively referred to as Joseph. Oh, what? Let me say that again. I just said that we were were called Judah right after Judah, right? But this also says that we are also called by Joseph's name. All Jews. So here's the reality. All Jews, no matter what tribe you come from, are all called by Judah's name and Joseph's name. Why? Because the two kings are one king. So it says, let me just read this again. As has been mentioned, the Jewish people are collectively referred to as Joseph, even though we are not all descended from him, because Joseph provided for us while we were sojourning in exile in Egypt, enabling us to grow from a family into a populous nation. But providing for us physically during the exile was exactly ju- was actually just a physical manifestation of how he was enabling us to survive the spiritual famine as well. Just as we internalize the spiritual food he provided for us, so do we internalize the spiritual nutrient he imparted to us. The immunity to the effect of exile became part of our very being. In other words, we are called Jews because of King Judah, but we are called by Joseph's name also because it is the spirit of Joseph or the spirit of Messiah ben ben Yosef that empowers us to remain holy in an unholy world. You're, not, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. So I just wanted to take that opportunity in case anybody got on google.com and make sure you understand that, that Jews are called Ephraim and Judah. We go by both names, right? Okay. So in the Humash, page 257, it's talking about the spirit returning to, um, to Yosef, or Yaakov, excuse me, Yaakov. Remember from last week we said that Yaakov did not have the spirit upon him. Ever since that his son disappeared, the spirit left him. When the revelation of his son being alive 
was given to him, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God came to him, and the Torah transitions from calling him Jacob to now calling him Israel. But it says in the Humash, uh, under the uh, 28th uh, uh, entry, it says, the news that brought rejoicing to Jacob, the news that brought rejoicing to Jacob was not merely that Joseph was physically alive. Please listen to me. We're undoing a lot of sacred cow theologies this morning, and we, you may not even realize it. But there's a sacred cow theology that is that all that we care about is the resurrection. And there's some who say that after the resurrection, everything changed. That Yeshua lived the Torah life, but once the resurrection happened, he had already fulfilled that, so there's no need to do it, so we're going to nullify the entire Bible. And, and people do. They nullify the entire Bible because we're no longer subject to the Word of God anymore. We're no, no, we're no longer under the yoke of Scripture. The Word of God no longer has any authority in our life. The word, I'm, changing the, I'm changing the verbiage because I want you to get it in your soul. See, we're not under the law is translated into English as we're no longer under Scripture. We're not under the law means that we're no longer under the Word of God. We're not under the law means that God's word has no power or authority over us anymore. When we say things, we need to understand what they mean. Now, I don't believe any of that. In fact, that's heresy to believe that. You would be what we call in the Bible a heretic. Because if you believe that the word of God has no power in your life, then what are you doing here? Why are you a Christian or a Jew or anything? What's the point? Understand what I'm saying? Yes. I'm here to rescue people. I'm here to help people, right? That's my, that's, my, that's my lot in life. So here we go. People believe that, but let's listen to what the commentation says here. The news that brought rejoicing to Jacob was not merely that Joseph was alive or even that he had risen to greatness in the land of his captivity. We have to have honest conversations, by the way. Hazan was telling me about an incident he had where he ran in this, this, I think it was this week, maybe it was last week, but anyway, had an encounter in a parking lot with a Christian person who was trying to sell some donuts or something. And they had this conversation about, and he says, you know, hey, are you Jewish? And uh, of course, it was hard to tell because he had a keeper and seed seed on him black and white, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. It, it's okay. It's a, it's a joke. It's shul humor. And so anyway, he said, yes, I am. And the man said, well, do you believe in, in uh, JC? And he was like, well, what do you mean by that? So they had this long discussion, right? And they discussed the law of God. And of course, the person has the Christian point of view and the Haslam has the proper point of view. And everybody's talking. <laughs> and at the end of the day, the Christian person said to the Haslam, which is, a, and this is an, what I'm about to say is admirable. And I appreciate the spirit of Shalom. But I think that we also have to confront the, the topic honestly because we live in a world where everybody wants, everybody's opinion wants to be proper. It's called Facebook. We live in a Facebook world, right? Now, the man says to him, and I, hopefully I'm getting this right, he says, well, listen, 
as long as you believe in the risen Messiah and I believe in the risen Messiah, that's all that really matters. No, it isn't. Because we've just been talking about we don't believe in the same Messiah. You understand what I'm saying? The guy that rose for you is not the guy that rose for me. Listen to me. Because he's, he, what you're saying he taught is the exact opposite of what I'm saying he taught. So I, under, I appreciate the shalom. That's great. I mean, you're not trying to kill me, and I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not going to blow up your bus. You're not going to blow up my bus, and that's all wonderful. We can live in peace. It's America. We can believe what we want to believe. But we're talking about brass tacks theology here. You, we can't walk away and go, well, at least he's resurrected. Because that didn't make Jacob happy. Jacob was not happy that he was just alive. I'm about to kick over the flower arrangement, but I'm going to refrain. So it says, or he wasn't happy that he was alive. Listen to this. Oh, my goodness. Please listen. Or even that he had risen to greatness in the land of his captivity. He wasn't happy that he was alive, and he wasn't even happy that he was king. We're about to find out what made Jacob happy. Now, Jacob is a euphemism for God. He's like a type, a type if you will, right? Because he's the father of the king, right? And he considers, if you want to get down to reality, Jacob considers Joseph his only begotten son. You know why? Because he's the first son, the firstborn of the wife he wanted to marry. He didn't want any other wife. He wanted only Rachel, just like a Nushpazim, just like that, only that. I want you and you only, and I got Leah, and God, thank God for that, and I got the other two ladies, Okay, it's a lot of shoes, but I wanted you. <laughs> so he considers Joseph his only begotten son, which is why he spent so much time teaching in the Torah and nobody else. He didn't spend time teaching Torah with anybody else, only Joseph. So it says, he wasn't even happy that he'd risen the greatest in the land of his captivity for Jacob defined life in spiritual terms. Boy, this is where we got to get. We define life in spiritual terms. What matters spiritually? He says, what re resuscitated Jacob's, that is Israel's spirit, was the assurance that the viceroy of Egypt was the same Joseph who had left Canaan 22 years ago before and that even remembering the Torah he had studied with his father. But Jacob was not yet satisfied, for only he could recognize the full extent of Joseph's spiritual stature. Great though his sons were, only he was the ultimate judge of the soul. And for that reason, he announced, I shall go and see him before I die. It says he wanted to see for himself if Joseph was truly the same. And Jacob's words implied if it was indeed the same Joseph, he was ready to die. For his mission of raising a perfect family would have been fulfilled. In other words, if I, the, the Messiah is alive, great. The Messiah is king, king. that's fantastic. And Kepha ran, ran to the cave. I've got to see him. And if he's the same one that went into the tomb and came out of the tomb, if he's the same king of kings and lord of lords, then I'm ready to die and give my life for him. But I'm not going to die and give my life for somebody who changes what they taught for the last three years and lived a lie for the last three years. Listen, what parent raises their children up, showing them how to live by their example, and then when they become an adult, say, oh, forget all that stuff. No longer have to live that way anymore. I just did that so that you'd have a good childhood, but now I want you to live completely different than what you were trained to do. Who could do that? 
I know Jews today that aren't religious Jews, but they still won't mix meat and dairy together. And it's not because of religiosity. It's just because that's how we grew up. Yeah. Right? There's merit in that, by the way. Because there's merit in every mitzvah. So Jacob was consoled and his spirit was revived only when he found out. This is the lesson. Only when he found out that the Messiah ben Yosef who died is the same Messiah ben Yosef when he's alive. The son who died when resurrected was the same son. There's consistency in the message. And that, by the way, brings comfort. Our children ought to know what our response is going to be. They ought to know when they ask something of us, generally what our answer is going to be. And they do know. This is why they ask mom first or vice versa. Right? Because they assume that mom or dad, whichever one, is going to say no. So they go ask the other one. So that they can walk back and go, mom said yes. Right? Now, sharing another thought. By the way, this, this, there's so much to be said about this part, Torah portion. There's the, spirit, the spiritual confrontation between Judah and, and Joseph. Are the two kings coming together? This is going to be, the, uh, this is going to be what happens when Messiah returns. Is that the manifestation of Judah and the manifestation of Joseph are going, to, are going to become one. Now, the reason that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, according to Midrash Shabbat 93.9, is that he saw something in his, in his brother. Now, the rabbis talk about this, that they take upon themselves the, each other's traits at this moment, supernaturally. Joseph laid down his life for his brothers. That's why he became the hope of the world. That's why he said, don't, don't bother yourselves. God is the one who sent me here. God sent me here. God sent me. He's the one who sold me, right? He sold me so that I could come here and be your redeemer. And I was happy to lay my life down so that you could live. But when Judah approached him before, it was Judah who wanted to kill him. So Judah wanted to kill his brother. So when he saw Judah approach and began to plead on the behalf of Benjamin, Joseph saw something in him that he was looking for, which was Teshuvah. But more importantly, it was according to the Midrash Shabbat, it says it like this. Judah was saying, see how he, or excuse me, Yosef said, see how he, Judah, gives his life for the sake of the children of Rachel. And Judah was saying, as I give my life for your sake, so I will give my life for the sake of your brothers. In other words, he saw in Judah a willingness to lay his life down, which if you go back to the other Midrashes about the Messiah, God asked the Messiah, when you go down and appear to become the Messiah, you will be killed for the sins of Israel. Do you accept this? Now he's talking to Messiah ben David. And Messiah ben David says, I not only accept it, but I accept it with joy. And I ask only that in my death that not even one baby, not even a stillborn would be lost in all of Israel. So his willing to lay his life down for Klal Israel is what motivated the revelation. So I just want to mention something here, going back, going looking at the scriptures again to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. Look at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. Now it says in the Talmud, it talks about the four craftsmen, the first four craftsmen of creation or, or yeah, of creation. And Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David are, are two of the craftsmen. Elijah's the other. 
and the priest anointed for war is the other. They're all one. Right? Okay. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. So it says in verse 55... From where, you said, what's being, begin in verse 53. When Yeshua had finished speaking these parables, he passed on from there. He came back to his own land and taught them in their synagogue. And they were astonished and said, from where did he get such wisdom and acts of power? Is he not the son of the craftsman? Is not his mother's name Miriam and his father Yaakov and Yosef? And Shimeon and Yehuda and his sisters are not, are they not all here with us? From, from where, when did he get all these? Now, they meant this as an insult. He's just a, he's just a, he's just a in many translations, says the carpenter's son. Now, the word for carpenter is, cra is the word harash in Hebrew, and it means craftsman. So, just in this case, they are prophesying. Over Yeshua, they're asking the question, where did he get this knowledge? And where did he get this power? Isn't he just a carpenter's son? But in fact, just like Balaam, they meant to speak a, a curse, but they were speaking a blessing. They say, Isn't he the son of a craftsman? Now, why is that important? Because the word harash is used in the Talmud in dis with distinction. And it says in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin 38a, in Gittim 88a, it says, Harash means craftsman. It can be vocalized as Harish, which means deaf-mute. As a result, Harash refers, this is a quote from the Talmud, Harash refers to Torah scholars so learned that they once, once they began discussing Torah, everyone in their presence became like a deaf-mute. In other words, they weren't able to answer him whenever he began speaking because he's the son of Harash. He's a scholar. And whenever they ask him a question, how many times does it say they were silent before him? Why? Because he's the son of Harash. He's the son of a craftsman. And when the brothers stood before Yosef and he said, I am Yosef, is my father still alive? Nobody could say a word. Why? Because he was a harash. At that moment, they all knew. Before then, right up until the time of Revelation, they all knew that what they had done was right and just. The boy deserved to die. This is the right thing to do. We all feel good about it. We're upset that we were a little bit cruel in doing it. But at the end of the day, it was okay. And as soon as he said, I am Yosef, it says, I'll quote, in fact, Rabbi Monk. It says, I am Yosef. Woe on the day of judgment, the Talmud says. Woe to us on the day of rebuke. It says the brother, brothers had always considered themselves absolutely right in their treatment of Joseph. They had a whole series of legal motives. It says that little by little they'd become convinced of their complete innocence in the matter. But when the hour of truth came, 22 years later, they needed only to hear two words, Ani Yosef. And they, Rabbi Monk writes, were petrified, speechless. The simple two-word rebuke abruptly tore away all the veil of falsehood. The brothers suddenly realized the shallowness of their excuses and all their pretext 
the whole beautiful system of defense came crashing down upon their heads. And it says, the Apostle Paul writes about the Jewish people, and it says that a veil covers their eye. A veil covers their eyes. And what's going to take away the veil is Ani Yosef. I am the Messiah bin Yosef. Now, when this happened, Yosef revealed himself to his brothers. There was nobody else in the room. It was just the brothers. Our mission here at Sar Shalom is to gather in holy sparks, to gather in the people. It's to gather in the Egyptians, if you will, so that they can know the true king that they're serving and help them to walk in his ways. Just like Yosef was telling people they need to get circumcised before they eat the bread. Now, it's not necessarily to reach the Jewish people per se. Certainly Jewish people come here and they, their eyes are illuminated. But listen, this is all, if we follow the model of Scripture, Yeshua is going to reveal himself to his brothers at the right moment, at the right time. Right? And it's not going to be the Yeshua who is the one that is so prevalent in the society today. It's going to be a Jewish Messiah. It's going to be a Messiah who knows everything about lighting a Hanukkah and nothing about anything else. Now, I just want to continue on here. I understand. I hope, I hope it's okay. I'm sharing these little thoughts here. I want to share about the fox. Right? Okay, I'm going to get to the fox now. All right. So I want to look at Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20. All of this relates back to the power shot, but you have to understand something. If you're new, you just have to understand something. Getting into the power shot is like getting into, it's like one of the great lakes. All, all I have time to do is scoop out like a quarter cup of the great lake into your cup right now. We can't, we don't have time to get in everything. And I know if it, I, I kind of feel like it, it feels discombobbled and I apologize, but this is all relevant to the parasha. So about the fox, Matthew 8 and verse 20 says, Yeshua tells him, tells who? Tells the man, I say, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. I'm ready to follow you anywhere you go, right? Remember that guy? I want to, and how many of us have said that to God? God, I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. I'm ready to go with you anywhere. I need you to be a Jew. Not there. I said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Don't eat pork. No, Lord. No, Lord. No, no, Lord. Right? Okay. Now you know why Hillel has not invited me to the worship team to sing. <laughs> play the harmonica. Play the bass sometimes, but keep the mouth shut. <laughs> All right. He calls me up. Rabbi, I need you. I'm, I'm sick. I need, you to, I need you to do the Hazan part today. I rebuke the devil. <laughs> Yeshua tells this guy... Yeshua tells this guy, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, trying to bring down a reference for you right quick. Now, in this part, portion, the rabbis talk about Yosef, and they say concerning him that he is the fox. There's two, interestingly, there's two animals that are used in Scripture 
that um, refer to kings in rabbinic literature. There's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and there is the fox, interestingly, right? Why the fox? Because the fox is considered like a little creature, really cute. We have had a fox walk through our uh, neighborhood the other day. Uh, so cute. Um, so we had this, we had a little fox here and you had this lion Theor the, and, and the rabbis talk about that the lion refers to the lion of Judah and the fox is like the fox of another nation, in this case, Egypt. And you would think that the lion should overpower the fox, but the Talmud says about the fox and the rabbis relate this back to, Yo to Yosef and they say, when the fox has his hour, bow to him. When the fox has his hour, bow to him. Now, in the footnotes, it talks about the fact that there was, a, it says in the Gemara that the head of the bed alludes to Yosef, who was now the head of Jacob's children. A bed being a metaphor for all of Israel, for the children of Israel. This is going back. When the fox has his hour, bow to him. What was, was Joseph then compared to a fox in relation to his brothers? What was his inferiority vis-a-vis -vis his brothers? Rather, it was said by Rabbi Eliezer, it was said thusly, then Israel prostrated itself towards the head of the bed. In other words, he wasn't inferior. It's just that he was not the long-lasting king. He was the first king to come, who was Messiah ben Yosef. And when the fox has his hour, you bow to him until the lion has his hour. Now, what's important about that is because, oh my goodness, I hope you can see this, is that the bed is all of Israel, right? The bed is all of Israel, and the head of the bed, the pillow, if you will, is the fox, that is Messiah ben Yosef. This guy comes to Yeshua, and he's all excited because he thinks he's the lion, which he is, but not yet. And he says, I want to follow you, lion of Judah. And the lion of Judah says, foxes have holes, and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is cryptic language that he would have understood in his day to mean, I am the fox now and not yet the lion, and I have nowhere within Israel to rest. So if you want to follow me, here's the problem. You're following, you're kneeling now before the fox. Are you willing to allow the fox to die and not have a place in Israel before I become the lion? And the man walked away from that and said, no, I'm looking for the lion, not the fox. That's what the Messiah was saying. There's, there's more, there's more. But ra like Rabbi Akiva said, I have gathered from the Torah only but a whiff of the Esrog. What do we know? What do we know? Hashem, we thank you, Father, for causing us to know the Messiah, Yeshua. Thank you for revealing truth to us. Thank you, Father, for helping us to drink from your goblet and bringing the sowed of understanding Bless you, Adonai, for all of this. It may be your will that you do gather in many, many holy sparks, many holy sparks to, to kneel to the fox. And may it soon be, Hashem, that the lion will reign among us speedily and soon. Amen, ve amen.